Thanks for tuning in again on another episode of the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman. Today we are talking Christian post-secondary education. I have ruling elder Scott Scheidmantle on with it. Did I say your name right? Scheidmantle? Yep, that's correct. Perfect. Perfect. He's a ruling elder, but he is a professor at Geneva College, right? That's correct. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. And my son and Adam and I just did a visit up to Geneva College this summer, not knowing that Scott worked there. And and as we visited a friend of mine, Jared Nelson, uh, Jared said, oh, Scott Scheidmantle teaches there. And then you saw about it on Facebook and you said, well, I hope they visited Geneva. <laughs> and he said, "We did." Yes, and we're and that's how we that's how we met. This is actually the first time we've had a conversation together. Uh, we've met through Facebook and our shared friend Jared Nelson, yeah, who's a teaching elder right. in our in our presbytery here, Ascension Presbytery in uh, Western PA. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for being for being on. And I know you just got back from a mission trip. Uh, was that with your church? Yes, uh, our church, uh, the church where I serve as a ruling elder, Chapel PCA, uh, is uh, in Beaver, Pennsylvania, and uh, we took some kids from our uh, youth group and uh, joined a work crew out in uh, the Warm Springs Reservation in Oregon, about three hours uh, southeast of uh, of Portland, and... um, Mm. Uh, a really neat work that's uh, that's happening there, being led by uh, some actually some covenant children from our presbytery uh, who've now grown up and uh, are now engaged in a church plant uh, out there on the reservation. Um, both uh, students now, uh, Holly and uh, Evan Shaw, uh, married. Um, my students at Geneva College uh, here in the past. Uh, children of our presbytery who are now married wow. and doing a church plant out on the reservation. So we went out there to to encourage them and to do some work projects on the reservation to kind of kind of help in whatever way we we could. So that was a lot of fun, and our kids who went with us grew tremendously and saw the Lord at work uh, through the ministry of uh, of the of the Shaws. Well, that's awesome. I was going to ask how how would you get connected with something all the way out in Oregon, but you. You explained that's a beautiful part of the country for sure, and so you serve in youth ministry. It sounds like. Well, I'm a ruling elder in a church of about 250 uh, attenders on Sunday morning, and so that means that uh, I have a lot of different responsibilities as a ruling elder. But one of my responsibilities as a ruling elder is I chair our youth ministry committee uh, of our church, oh, and so we oversee the seventh through twelfth grade ministry at the church and so I'm I serve as a uh, uh, as a volunteer leader on our Sunday night uh, youth group meeting which we call focus and uh, and then share uh, a committee of, uh, of parents and other volunteers that work with our youth group uh, as well and so that's one of the responsibilities okay. that I have as a as a ruling elder of session of our church yes and I'm sure you have a way of speaking to the next generation being a college professor so you enjoy that well i've uh i'm a professor in the bible department at geneva and i've been here for 26 years so i've seen uh a lot of cultural change over the last 26 years and have made some adjustments to the way that uh, that we try to communicate the gospel the gospel of course doesn't change uh same timeless truths 
but the, the points of connection, the points of contact, and the problems that kids face these days are a little bit different than the ones that they faced maybe 25 uh, years ago or, or so. So my, my area is biblical studies. I was trained as a New Testament scholar. Um, I had the privilege of doing my PhD in uh, New Testament under a guy named D.A. Carson at Trinity Evangelical Divinity <laughs> School and uh, in uh, John's Gospel. I wrote 350 pages on three verses in John's Gospel and uh, that was a lot, of, a lot of fun and then for the last 26 years I've been teaching here uh, at, at Geneva where really the largest major in our department is, is student ministry. So youth men. Um, so I'm kind of oh, a, really? yeah, so I'm kind of a, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Bible professor, but also, you know, see my role as, uh, as trying to, uh, to train the next generation of, uh, of youth directors to think biblically and to teach biblically and, uh, to have a good, solid, reformed, uh, hermeneutic in the way that they, uh, interpret and apply the Bible. Well, man, that's awesome. Cause I didn't know some of what I want to talk to you about is, is you, you've touched on a lot of the points already, just how the culture has changed and what you've seen from the, the, this generation, but also about Geneva College. And I didn't realize you actually had a, a full Bible department with a major in, in youth ministry. I, I, I don't know why I didn't realize that. I know we went up there and visited because you have a, a well-known engineering program and my son wants to study mechanical engineering. And of course, we want to explore Christian uh, Christian universities. I want to see, is it a legit program? And I was very impressed with it, actually, uh, being a, a former engineer myself. Um, so we got to get into a lot of what you said. But first, I got to know, what were the three verses of for, for your dissertation or your thesis? Oh, sure. John 7, 37 to 39. And, okay. your view, and your viewers can look that up, right? So it's the passage that says uh, it's Jesus who stands up and cries out in a loud voice, Right on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and let him drink. The one who believes in me out of the midst of him will flow rivers of living water. And, mm. uh, and that's set up as an Old Testament quotation passage. Um, but nobody's quite sure what Old Testament passage is being quoted there. If it's a particular, uh, particular passage or if it's like a matrix that's summarizing a whole bunch of different uh, Old Testament water-related, spirit-related texts, and so I was exploring that 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 question, and I and I just you know I kept oh, wow. it the, I kept it to 350 pages. So you kept it to 350. Yes. Well, I may have to get a hold of that. I'm preaching through John's Gospel, and we're in chapter six now, so probably sometime nice. next month I'll need it. Nice. Yeah. So what? Actually, what's the what's the connection between John seven and John four? Then did you do anything with that? Yeah, I think the there's a, the well. I think there's a water theme that uh, that flows through the whole book, right? That that actually oh, oh, through the whole, okay. Yeah, through the whole Gospel of John, you know, the water, spirit, spirit, water, uh, imagery that flows through the whole the whole book, and it shows up very early on, right? Um, when Jesus is interacting with uh, with uh, Nicodemus in in John three, you must be born of the water and of the spirit. Right, and so right. Uh, water, uh, that imagery permeates the Old Testament. As you know, if you've ever had the opportunity to visit the Middle East, 
uh, you know, uh, where it's dry, there's no life. Where there's water, there's life, right? So, ah. so this Old Testament idea that God provides water in the midst of the desert, right? And the water from the rock miracles that happens not just once but twice, right? Uh, God is the provider of life. He provides his spirit to dead sinners like you and me. And, uh, and so that idea of water and spirit and life shows up a number of different times in the, uh, in the Gospel of John, as does the broader theme of life, right? So sure. uh, these things were written that you might have life right. and you might uh, have it in his name, as, uh, as the author writes in, in chapter 20. So water is, just yeah. one of the ways, water is just one of the ways that the theme of life uh, shows up in John's gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Even as you're saying that, I'm thinking, I mean, I could think, you know, chapter one, he, Jesus is baptized. Chapter two, water to wine. Chapter three, what you said with to Nicodemus. Chapter four, the woman at the well. Five, the healing at the pool. Uh, six, Jesus walks on water. Seven, I'm living water. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's amazing. It, it's, it's it, part yeah. of the development well, I, of, the, I'm gonna... of the theme of life. Yeah, praise God. Okay, well, so let's, um, you know, a lot of guys in your position who you have a PhD in, in the scriptures, you teach at a Bible college, Bible classes, and you're a ruling elder. Had you given thought to becoming a teaching elder? This is because this is a, a podcast for ruling elders, and this is a theme I like to explore with guys sure. because some guys choose to be, like I was a ruling elder who became, when I... For me, the decision was when I when a church wanted me to come on staff full time is when I said, okay, I want to be a teaching elder. But when I was serving in 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 the public world and and being a ruling elder, I thought that's perfect, you know. So what what is what was the thought process for you? Sure. Well, my my uh, role to to being a ruling elder in the PCA took a rather um, a roundabout uh, uh, route. So uh, I grew up in a uh, what I would probably characterize as an evangelical PCUSA church uh, in the 1970s and 80s, and uh, got involved in youth ministry um, uh, under uh, a youth pastor at our church who graduated from Westminster Seminary. And uh, this was back, um, you know, in a time where there were still a good number of evangelical churches in the PCUSA. And so I actually uh, went on to seminary and, uh, and then did a post-seminary degree in New Testament and was ordained as a teaching elder in the PCUSA. Wow, okay. And uh, served as a pastor in a little country church uh, here in western Pennsylvania in the PCUSA. And then um, went on to get my Ph.D., uh, in New Testament under D.A. Carson and was very much, uh, you know, part of the evangelical movement in the, uh, in the PCUSA. And, and just, I, I came to some convictions while I was doing my doctoral work um, uh, regarding uh, women's ordination. And I felt that the position of the PCUSA on that, on that view was just untenable. Uh, actually served as a grad assistant for a guy named Andreas Kostenberger, uh, who mm. wrote uh, a book on women in the church and just came to the point through uh, engaging in that study that 
um, that the eldership was limited to men. And I thought, felt that was very clear from the scriptures. And, uh, and then the, you know, the leftward turn of the PCUSA and the whole LGBTQ area, uh, it just didn't seem uh, that there was a desire in that denomination for church discipline. And, and you know, as a, as a growing person uh, influenced by the Reformation, the third mark is, uh, of, the, of the church is church discipline. And I just didn't see that mark working itself out. So by the, by the time I then came to the end of my doctoral work, I, I just made the decision that for conscience sake, I just could no longer stay in the PCUSA. So I, I actually resigned my ordination in the PCUSA and uh, began to attend a, uh, a PCA church uh, here when I was called at Geneva College. And uh, it's the same church that I'm involved in uh, now. And um, um, fully intending to just enjoy being a person in the pew. And, and after, uh, after a couple of years of involvement there, the, uh, uh, the elders and the pastor um, said, you know, Scott, we, we'd really love to have you as a ruling elder uh, in, uh, uh, in the uh, in the PCA, and um, I had thought about going in the direction of the of of, of the teaching elder position, but um, when I was approached to to become a, a ruling elder, I just uh, took that as a uh, as an external call to that role coming from the church, and uh, and sensed internally, yeah, I I would, I think I have the the gifts and the the passion and desire to serve. Uh, in that role. So um, going on, I think, 15 years ago or so now, I was ordained uh, as a ruling elder and have continued to serve in that capacity uh, uh, in Chapel uh, PCA here in Western Pennsylvania. Great, great. Who's the senior That's pastor there? Steve Maker is okay, our senior not... pastor. Steve is a, uh, a fine fellow, Westminster grad, Westminster Seminary grad, um, our associate pastor is Tom Stein, uh, who is a Covenant uh, Seminary grad, and also on staff we have a part-time uh, Christian uh, Education Direct Children's Ministry Director, uh, Aaron Kikasola, uh, who's a Covenant College grad. So, um, yeah, and then we have a, a really, um, a really great group of guys that are serving together on the session. There's uh, I think there's 10 of us ruling elders right now on the session, and uh, uh, what a joy to be with. We're, we, we try to work uh, in such a way that we come to uh, unanimity on decisions that we make and, and enjoy fellowship with each other and just a, just a fine group of fellows. That's a great testimony. That's great. So, yeah, I, I, didn't, that's, I, I appreciate you telling us some of your journey there, and that, and that makes sense. And I mean, I think a lot of guys would say, you know, you're working actually for a, not only a Christian institution, but one that's within NAPARC being a RPCNA that, you know, maybe you'd get a, a call under the, like for it to be a teaching elder under BCO8, and that's totally legitimate, but I, I, I really appreciate your your heart to serve in the capacity that you are. Let's um, Let's talk Geneva. So I had never heard of Geneva before. I was introduced to it at the PCA General Assembly the last couple of years, met Benjamin there. Um, 
Yeah, ben, Benjamin was the ben, rep. Yeah, Ben Kennedy. Yes. Yeah, Ben is the son of one of our engineering professors. Oh, okay. And also works at the college. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I never told Ben that, but th- this, but the reason I even stopped at the booth, because there's other colleges represented there and other seminaries. And, and like I said, I just have not been familiar with Geneva, but they had some really cool swag sitting on the table two years ago. And I don't remember what it was, but I, I always feel guilty to just walk by and take something. So I, I started talking to him and I totally figured when I asked the question, it would kind of put an end to the conversation. I want to say, well, my son's interested in being a mechanical engineer. And I didn't think there were very many Christian colleges that, that offered that. And He's like, well, that's one of our main programs. We're we're the only ABET accredited engineering school that's Christian, and uh, although Grove City is also, but uh, I'm, I'm not quoting him. But it basically, he pr- he was promoting the engineering program. And I said, well, all right, I'll keep you in mind. My son at the time was only a freshman, so this past year I saw him again, and uh, liked what I heard, and so we had some time this summer. I wanted to run up there, check you guys out, and also Grove City, because you're, you're not too far away from one another, and you're both uh, Presbyterian-ish. I, I guess Grove City is is more uh, non-denominational at this point, but but you guys are thoroughly RPCNA. I mean, that came across in the tour, and it came across in an attractive way. Like, I don't... It wasn't overt, but, it, but I speak the Napark language. So I, I understand, I, I saw hints of our reformed heritage everywhere and also in action. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about Geneva as an institution and, and some of, uh, for our listeners that might not be familiar. Sure. Sure. Let, let me say a couple of things, uh, at various levels, maybe, uh, you know, from the 30,000 foot, uh, level looking down, big picture. Uh, Geneva College is, as you've already alluded to, owned uh, by the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, which is a NAPARC uh, church, a smaller uh, conservative Presbyterian denomination. Um, Been around for a long time, uh, finds its heritage back in the Scottish Reformation. And so uh, the RPCNA is, uh, is a branch church coming over from Scotland directly. One of the characteristics of the RPCNA is they only sing the Psalms. And uh, I'll tell you what, if, you've, if you enjoy singing the Psalms and you enjoy hearing the Psalms sung well, emphasis well, <laughs> go to an RPCNA church because they know how to sing the Psalms and they know how to sing the parts. And uh, there's nothing like singing God's word, right? Um, now I'm PCA, so I, I consider myself an inclusive psalm singer. So uh, we sing the hymns and the psalms uh, at uh, at our church. Uh, but that's one of the characteristics of the RPCNA, um, conservative Presbyterian uh, denomination that owns uh, that owns the college. Uh, and and you're right, that does permeate the whole institution, right? So uh, you know we're governed by the Westminster standards. Uh, we're governed by uh, a document called the uh, uh, Educational Concepts of Christian Education, and I should say something about uh, that. You know, back in the 1960s, uh, back in the 1960s, when the culture was really starting to go crazy and strange, that affected a lot of Christian colleges around the country. So, in the 1960s, 
uh, a lot of Christian colleges began to compromise and move away from um, being grounded on God's word, being grounded confessionally uh, on uh, uh, standards like the Westminster Standards. And so that was happening to Geneva as well uh, in the 1960s. And a, uh, a group of professors at the college and uh, ruling elders and teaching elders in the RPCNA got together and produced a document that essentially became kind of the, the college's statement of faith. And from that point on, that document um, became a kind of secondary standard that all faculty members uh, have to adhere to when they come to the college, which includes things like the doctrine of inerrancy, the sovereignty of God, uh, not only over salvation, but over all the disciplines, and a, a very strong commitment to the integration of faith in every discipline. So the idea that Christ is king, not only over the study of the Bible, but also the study of engineering and the study of biology and the study of business. And so uh, every faculty member that comes to Geneva College, um, and we have a tenure system here, the tenure system uh, includes the, the uh, producing of a major paper that, that demonstrates the professor's approach to integrating the sovereignty of God over their discipline. I love so, that. So every faculty member has to produce that paper, an integration paper, and then it has to be approved by the Board of Trustees in order for someone to, to get tenure at the college. So I had to do that. I'm a tenured faculty member. Uh, faculty members in business, biology, and engineering uh, have to do that um, as well. And that's, that's the way that we kind of maintain quality control uh, for commitment to the uh, educational concepts, that document that was produced in the 1960s. So that's probably why as you visited the college and you interacted with different people, uh, you, you, you heard language, the language of integration, the language of Christ as king over all the different disciplines, right? And so, um, and I know we're probably gonna talk about this a little bit later, but there are some Christian colleges, you know, that have kind of a bifurcation, right? Kind of a division between spiritual things and you know your studies so you might go to a christian college and they'll say oh we're going to have bible study in the dorms and you're going to have to go to chapel and we want you to go to church but we never talk about the bible and we never talk about god in our classrooms maybe we talk about you know being a good person or developing in virtue you know that that kind of stuff that that's not really uh I'll, I'll be frank, that's not really a Christian view of education, is it? Um, so, uh, so, no. so, so at Geneva, uh, we try, and we don't do it perfectly. We're, we're a work in progress, but we try to approach education through the lens of, hey, God has created all things. They belong to him. Christ is king over all things. Let's try to figure out together what it means to understand biology and business and engineering and Bible uh, under the kingship of Christ. Yeah, so Scott, it's it's interesting you say that because there's there's a, on the one hand, like you said, there's the example where there's the bifurcation or the dichotomization of common grace, special revelation, but there's the other side of the spectrum that all they 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 think is biblical integration attack Bible verses into the curriculum. 
And that's not biblical integration either. And so what, what you're talking about is, is viewing the subject matters, the curriculum through a biblical worldview and a biblical lens, not just hacking Bible verses into curriculum. Is that correct? Exactly. I couldn't have put it any better myself. You're, you're right. Coloring what we're studying by tacking in uh, a couple of Bible verses at the end of a lecture, right, really just doesn't cut it. And often it comes in the terms of, of virtue, right? Right. That, that as you market mm -hmm. this product, whatever it is, that probably shouldn't be marketed, you know, <laughs> let's market it as, as, you know, as nicely as you can, right? And, and that's not right. really, that's not really uh, integration, right? Marketing for, and I'm, I'm not a business professor, but, you know, what you market makes a difference. And, uh, and of course, the way that you market uh, things make, make a difference as well. Okay, so how long, you've been there almost 20 years, is that right? I've been there 26 years, yes. Oh, 26 years, okay. 26 years. Okay, and so you, you are teaching people who are studying within the department, what's the requirement for the rest of the, the school, the engineering majors, the business majors, the education majors? Sure. Sure. Well, all of us what, in the Bible the department. Bible sure, all of us uh, in the Bible department have responsibilities both to teach our major majors and to teach uh, in the core. So that's kind of fun. So half of my load every semester is going to be teaching uh, Bible majors, right? Um, so we've got student men, Bible missions, pre-seminary, and philosophy majors in our department. So every semester, half of my classes are teaching those students. But the other half of my classes are teaching in the core, and uh, students in those classes would be from a whole range of, of different, uh, different majors. So students that come to Geneva, uh, regardless of major, have to take uh, three uh, courses in our department. Everybody takes Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, and then a course that we call Christian worldview analysis. Uh, Old and New Testament survey taken as freshmen, and uh, those courses are kind of, you know, pretty self-explanatory. And then uh, the third course, Christian worldview analysis, students take that as a junior, a junior level uh, course. That's basically how to understand the world uh, Christianly. So uh, about a third of that class is looking at some of the really important theological themes, uh, often what we would consider the categories of systematic theology, so uh, introduced at the uh, undergraduate level. So we talk about, um, you know, the doctrine of, of uh, creation and the importance of uh, the creation mandate. Uh, we talk about the doctrine of, uh, of sin, uh, particularly how that impacts our understanding of what it means to be human and the confusion uh, that that brings, the noetic effects of sin, um, you know, how we shouldn't trust our feelings because our feelings can often be untrustworthy. Uh, that's a big issue in our day and age, isn't it? And we talk about, Definitely. The, doc talk about the doctrine of redemption and what redemption looks like individually in Christ. Uh, through uh, the finished work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. And we talk about the implications of, uh, of redemption for uh, even our work and how uh, Christ calls us as our king, as citizens of the kingdom of God, to engage in our work, right, whether it's as an engineer or as a biologist or as a pastor, 
uh, to engage in our work with a kingdom uh, kind of mentality, right? Uh, that we're seeking to honor God in our work and to seek the benefit of others around us, particularly those that have come to trust in Christ. So, um, so that's the, that's that's the first part of that junior course, and then then we do um, a cultural analysis unit for another third of the course, where we look at movies and TV shows and identify the the popular worldviews that are at work in uh, in in popular culture, so that our our kids can identify them when they come across them and be able to critique them from uh, the theological themes that we looked at in the first unit, right? What's, what's wrong in this popular TV show from a, you know, a biblical anthropology, right? What's, what's, what's the vision of redemption that's presented in this popular movie that's just got it wrong, right? And then we end uh, the semester by uh, introducing students to the worldview of Islam, uh, which might you might initially think, well, Islam. How does how does this fit? Well, we think it's important to uh, equip students not just to understand their Christian worldview theologically, but then to be able to, as an apologist, share their faith with someone of a different worldview perspective or even a different world religion, and bring that to bear. Um, and so we we use uh, Islam as kind of a case study. So is that um, a, is that a whole course or that's just the end yeah, of this is a this is a whole course those three units in one whole oh, course three, right, right. Uh, we divide the course into thirds and uh, and cover those those three topics so it's so it's it's semester one semester it's, it's a full semester yeah yeah so everybody that comes to Geneva takes those three courses right Old Testament survey New Testament survey and then Christian worldview analysis um, okay. Yeah, that's the so, Bible core that's required for everybody. Right. Now, what, what are your students? Are they mostly Christian students? Are you open to, like, is there a statement of faith or a covenant they have to sign themselves? Yeah, or? yeah great question. Uh, about 90% of our students are uh, Christians. They identify uh, as having a church background. Uh, we do not require a statement of faith for students to come, so we do get... You know, about 10% of our student population are uh, what what they would self-identify as other or unchurched, right? So, um, but about 90% of our of our students would be uh, kids from a Christian perspective. So they do not sign a faith statement, but they do sign a, a code of conduct. Uh, and you might you might catch the difference between those two things, right? We, sure. We don't. You know, so there's certain behavioral expectations that we have uh, of uh, students that come, whether or not they identify as Christians. So, the, the neat thing about that is, yes, there is a Christian environment. Certainly, all faculty and staff uh, are required to be uh, believers. Um, about 90% of the students um, self-identify as coming from a churched background. Um, but again, about 10% uh, are students who are maybe seeking, thinking about the faith, uh, have no faith background whatsoever, and aren't very interested, but they're coming, you know, for the major, or they're coming because it's close to home, or they're coming because of one of the sports that we offer, which makes it a really neat opportunity for Christians to share their faith. So, I mean, we've got some great stories of 
of, uh, of kids that come to, to the college being led to faith by a professor in class or a roommate or a Bible study that's held, you know, in the dormitories. Uh, matter of fact, um, our past Bible department chairman who just retired a couple years ago came to Geneva as a non-Christian in 1965 and was led to faith by an upperclassman his freshman year and wow. lo and behold, four years later, he graduated from Geneva and went on to seminary and then served as a pastor for about 40 years and <laughs> a department chair at, uh, at Geneva. So those are some of the neat stories. And, uh, you know, there, there are pluses and minuses to that approach, as you might imagine. But I also know of other Christian colleges that require kids to sign a statement of faith. And, you know, who knows, uh, you know, the... Uh, the accuracy of that uh, of that signature. Who knows, uh, you know. But anyhow, uh, that's that's kind of yeah, the well, uh, the requirement at the college. Right. Well, the code of conduct is is really what is is really what like if parents are listening and they're thinking, I'd like to send my kids to a Christian college that's going to uphold these things. You know, the, I would think it's the code of conduct that would be more important. Uh, I love what what the faculty have to sign and the the process to get tenure. That sounds, I had never heard of that before. Yes. So, and, and, and by the way, you should know that annually faculty and staff have to, uh, resign, mm -hmm. uh, right. the, uh, uh, that document affirming, hmm. um, uh, the college's, uh, uh, statement of faith. It's great. So one thing that was on my mind was because I was the academic rigor and how, how the university or colleges is viewed among corporations. I, I was an engineer myself. I, I worked with, I worked for Procter and Gamble. I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And so I have a pretty specific way of looking at success uh, metrics for, for engineering schools. How many, uh, how many interviews are, are coming are being generated by the school for the student? What's the, um, placement rate into jobs for the students. What's the starting salaries, and you know that those are the those are the metrics I was looking for. And I was real. I mean, a hundred percent placement rate for your engineers. So I mean, that kind of answers that question, right? And above uh, the median starting salary, and 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 all that, and the corporation list that hires from you guys uh, was impressive. So. That kind of solved that problem for me. But along those lines, I've also been curious about, you, you alluded to the, the the changing culture and the way uh, even the mindsets of current students. And given that you are so distinctly Christian and we are living in a post-Christian country in a, in a negative world view toward Christianity, have you guys experienced any, I don't know if you'd even say or what you can say, but experienced any sort of bias against your your graduates into secular fields because of where they're coming from? Yeah, I have not personally heard any stories along those lines. Um, and, th and that, as I, uh, you gave me this question to reflect on before we, before we met. So I, I, I gave that some uh, some some thought. I'm not familiar with any stories personally that I've heard of uh, of graduates being 
you know, not offered a job or not offered an interview or even being let go because of their connections to the, to the college. Um, I wonder if some of that might be regional because uh, I know that, that certain parts of, uh, of the country and we could probably identify some, some of them would, would have more of, a, of an anti-Christian bias than say um, the South or uh, even where we are. I mean, I, I'm convinced having grown up and, and, uh, and lived much of my life here in Western Pennsylvania that we're kind of on the spur of the Bible belt in, in many ways here. And so uh, my own experience has been actually the opposite that um, a lot of employers really like Geneva grads because our grads tend to, to graduate with not only expertise in their field, but a development in virtue. And mm. I think employers, you know, want people that, you know, that tell the truth, want people to work hard, want people that can produce, uh, people that honor uh, their uh, bosses placed in authority over them who are good followers, who, who become good leaders and uh, that that's really important. So, I mean, I know, uh, I know I don't teach in the engineering department, but I've, because engineering is such a large major at our school, and I've had, a, I have those, those kids in, in my Bible classes. I mean, I've heard stories of, of employers um, in and around the Pittsburgh area that will only hire Geneva grads. And a long string of, uh, okay. of Geneva grads being hired for some of the reasons that I, that I mentioned. Uh, again, with the caveat that maybe, maybe we're unique here uh, in the pencil in the Western Pennsylvania area, but uh, but I've not experienced uh, any of the phenomenon of students, uh, you know, being ostracized in some way because of the college that they've attended, whether it's here or some other Christian college. Yeah. No. I. I. I and actually, I don't really have any evidence that I don't have any reason to believe except I'm trying to read the signs of the times. I mean, when I left Procter and Gamble in, in 2002, so 21 years ago, I mean, we were already being like the company was taking executives and, and at the plant level, the manufacturing plant level and sending them off site for multiple day sensitivity training classes. They were already giving out the rainbow flags that you were supposed to stick. I mean, this is 2002 stick on your, your office, door or desk to show uh the the rest to virtue signal essentially and if you didn't do that what what mess so i mean that's 20 years ago so the things i've heard from friends in corporate america in in certain corporations are more known for this than others makes me wonder if those corporations are like putting um you know have having sort of a blacklist from certain universities like i think of liberty university like is there I mean, I know a lot of people that go to Liberty University, but obviously being associated with the religious right, is that a problem? Um, but I, I, I've never heard of a case where it is, but I'm just wondering if, it, if it's going to be. But like I said, when, 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 when the school can say that their starting salaries are above the median nationally, and, and that's saying something because where you're located, the cost of living, in my understanding, is it's not unreasonable. And so they're still having very good starting salaries competitively nationwide. And then to say 100% uh, 
job job acquisition upon six, within six months of graduation. It's like, okay, well, people are obviously hiring from Geneva, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and and you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I I was born and raised here in Western Pennsylvania, and I have obviously committed to to being here in Western Pennsylvania, both my wife and and I, um, and we love it here. Uh, the cost of living is very reasonable uh, here, and uh, Western Pennsylvania, the Pittsburgh area, um, you know, has a lot in the in the area of healthcare and development of technologies, and the rebound after steel, big steel, and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So, um, so we feel very positive about about the region and uh, where things are heading. It. it- it's a beautiful part of the country. I'd never really spent much time uh, out there. I, I I actually, when I was with PNG, I was in Scranton, Pennsylvania, so across you know the the northeastern side of things. But um, what a beautiful campus! Actually, in this video, I'll put some of the pictures of the campus, and that really impressed my son and myself, uh, my son Adam, and um, we actually spent time a couple days at, at Ohio Pile State Park. Do you know where that is? I sure do. Yeah. <laughs> I had, I'm teaching my kid how to whitewater kayak. Cause that was kind of my <laughs> thing. And so we were out on the Yakagani, uh, and it was, it was awesome, but what a great little town in, in, in the mountains there. A lot of rafting, a lot of mountain biking, a lot of hiking. We really enjoyed that. So you, you definitely, so we, like I said, we went to Grove city and we went to Geneva and we, we loved them both. I have nothing negative to say about, about either one. And really on the drive up, I asked my son, you know, if he was excited about this trip and he, he genuinely was. And I said, well, what, you know, where are you thinking of, of, of schools? And I, I wanted to hear his heart. I, I, I know what he's going to say, but he, he really was going up there thinking he was, he wants to go to NC state and we're in North Carolina. Um, it's a well-known school. It's very difficult to get into. And I'm not, I mean, the, the kid's a straight A student, but I'm still not, there's no guarantee of anything, but after after coming back, it, uh, he seems like he wants to go to one of these two schools. So he's only a ju- he's only starting his junior year. The whole thing was is is very early, but I I definitely think we'll be back up there because we were just we we're just super impressed with it. And maybe this is some, th- some things parents will be thinking of as they hear this too. But you just hear horror stories about universities, what's going on on college campuses around around the country. And I I mean maybe I sound like. I'm a fear mongering or whatever. I, I don't know. But when you, when you have, especially in a reform sense, in a covenant home, covenant family sense, I think everything I've done in my life since I've been married and had, and had children has been to raise my family in the fear and, you know, uh, nurture and admonition of the Lord and to understand Christianity and theology and, and a heart for our sovereign creator and his, Savior son um in a specific way for 18 years do i do i want to pay to send him somewhere that's going to for 4 years undo what we've done for 18 in the home in the church and so then there's the thought well let's send him to a, a safe place you know and again like a liberty maybe or something and it's like well that might be okay but the fact that there's a distinctly reformed place that is well respected in in the community um, for the fields that our kids want to study. It's very attractive, and so that that's that's what's attracting me to the the whole the whole Geneva thing. I'll, I'll 
just a, I, I didn't expect to do a commercial for you, Scott. But uh, uh, there you go. There you go. Well, you can, well, well I think you're speaking or uh, speaking my language as a you know as a PC PCA ruling elder, and you know who uh, we sh we should all value the concept of covenant uh, children and covenant children raising. Uh, that um, boy, we want our kids. We want our kids to embrace the faith that is so much a part of who we are. Hmm. And uh, the statistics are not good in terms of the number of kids that are, uh, that are leaving the faith during their college years. The statistics are not good. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I'm not a fear monger either. I, I don't think we should recruit students out of, uh, you know, kind of a posture of fear. Um, I don't think that's healthy, but I, but I think that there is a place for making the argument that, um, you know, sending our kids that will both affirm what it is that we've been trying to teach them as well as to further prepare them uh, as Christians from a reform perspective for their future work so that they can go out and work as Christians from a Christian worldview in the workplace, I think that's a good argument for uh, sending your child to a place like like Geneva, mm. right? Right. So they're so they're gonna you know we we we're gonna take seriously uh, and the responsibility of of uh, of parents entrusting their kids uh, to us as part of as part of the, uh, the the discipleship discipleship process. Our, our president, Calvin Trout, likes to say that we are about the ministry of education. That's what we're about, the ministry of education. It's a ministry to provide kids with the vocational training that they need for the workplace, but do it in a way that nurtures uh, a Christian worldview perspective and nurtures their faith. Mm. Yeah. So that's important. The, the only alternative to that, right, is a uh, you know, if, you know, as PCAers, we love RUF, you know, so maybe there's a strong RUF chapter at NC State, maybe, uh, I don't know. Um, but uh, in my view, this is my own view as a parent, right? Uh, we, we hope to send our kids to Geneva or a like-minded Christian school that has their major. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we can't find a Christian college that doesn't have their major, then a, then a backup, maybe a, a secular school, more secular school that has a strong RUF chapter. Mm -hmm. But our default, our default uh, as parents uh, is going to be a, a, you know, a, pl a place like Geneva. How, how old are your kids? We have two high school kids, so we're in the midst of, of that whole process yeah. uh, that you're in uh, as well. It, it, it happens. It, it comes out of nowhere. You know, it's just and uh, and by the way, we're looking at a number of of um, I mean, I, I think I'm going to probably take them up to Rensselaer Polytech. It's non-Christian. We're going to go over to NC State. Not, you know, it's public or state run. So, we, you know, again, we're not saying uh, and, and we need missionaries on secular college campuses too, but uh, definitely love uh, what Geneva stands for and offers. And, you know, I was just even thinking back to my own college. I mean, in 1994, as a freshman at RPI, they, they would, we had to take some humanities classes, of course. And I was in a, it was a sociology class. And, the, and one of the first classes, this sociology professor said, Jesus was probably, uh, he, he's probably made up 
a made-up figure, but if he did exist, he lived in a homosexual community with his 12 disciples. And he started quoting stuff from some Gnostic Gospels, I forget which one. And uh, th this this poor Catholic girl across the room just started crying right there, you know. And, and that was 1994. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I remember when my undergrad, I went to a state school. Uh, can I can I tell you when? I started in the fall of 1983, so I'm okay. a little bit older than you. Well, and, ten years, uh, ten and, years and, old. And uh, my first, my I remember one semester I had a. Uh, this gives you a little bit of a flavor of the classes that I had. I had a class with a lapsed Roman Catholic, a communist, a Buddhist, and a Mormon, uh, all in the same semester. And at the end of that semester, I ended it sounds up sounds like very, a joke. I ended up a very confused young man, uh, and uh, fortunately, I was still connected uh, firmly to the church and uh, had a good pastor who kind of walked me through some of that. Um, but uh, that was those were challenging times and uh you know it, i i personally think it's best to walk through some of those important issues nothing wrong with studying mormonism or buddhism or some of those other isms but to do it in a way that's guided right well uh from a uh a christian uh perspective that's 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 important yeah yes okay so let's uh let, let's talk about the student population like the trends you're seeing so you've been there for two and a half decades and a lot of changes has happened in those i mean we've you know it used to be groups of people over a longer period of time were kind of grouped together but now it's like we don't know what to call people millennials gen z gen you know it's and you've seen it you, you've you've seen it so all the stuff and all the things we hear about critical theory and, and uh, Marxist ideology, all the gender ideology. I mean, the PCA has been embroiled in, in e even in these debates over, the, you know, how do we refer to people and what's identity and all that. What are you seeing among uh, this generation of mostly Christian kids who, you know, they claim a Christian background? Uh, what what are some of the trends you're seeing? What are some of the, the helpful ways to for us to view this, we all have youth programs. We all, you know, most of the listeners are officers in the church here. So, well, if I can just be crass, I think things are a mess. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, um, you know, so many, so many of us in the church are, you know, 10, 20 years behind the times in terms of trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> and we're, we're surprised we're surprised when uh, when our young people uh, say to us, well, "What's wrong with gay marriage?" Or, you know, "What's wrong with Johnny who wants to be Emily?" You know, and um, uh, because because you know all of the messages that they're receiving from all the institutions that surround our kids, right, are saying that that these things are not bad things. As a matter of fact, these things are good things. And so we shouldn't be surprised when even our covenant kids are coming to us and saying, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? Uh, after, after all, aren't we supposed to love uh, people, right? So, uh, so we, should, we should stop. First of all, we should stop fooling ourselves into thinking that our, our covenant kids aren't wrestling with these things. They are. Yeah, Scott, let me, let me just tag on in on that. There's a, I heard a pastor at a presbytery meeting once say, um, that 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 his own kids like don't understand what's wrong with you know like don't don't see the big deal about transgenderism and and stuff and um 
so yeah definitely i mean we have we have institutions uh, media social media especially uh just uh promulgating this stuff so uh, so we we I, I think we need to um to, to really be wise and thoughtful about how we address these things with our kids, um, maybe earlier than later, um, and uh, and to do so from a creational theology. I think I think it's important that that from a creational theology, and particularly from the perspective of of the Imago Dei, that's such an important part of the creational theology of the first couple chapters of, of, of Genesis. We need to, to, to just continually right, communicate with our kids that God has created things to be a certain way for our good and to bless us and uh, for our benefit and that God, when he creates, creates us male and female in his image, male and female, and that, uh, that the Adam and Eve story has implications for what marriage should look like and what it should be. And, uh, you know, these stories are, are powerful stories and they need to be taught to our kids from an early age and applied from an early age um, uh, in, in ways that, that counteract the, the cultural message that is just flooding uh, over our children. And then as our kids get older, we need to, to help them navigate Right, the nuances of uh, of these things. Um, I, I think I think the most confusing thing for our college students uh, that I think flows out of, unfortunately, the the confusion that's been part of the conversation in the PCA uh, is that uh, the side B discussion is deeply problematic. Right. In in other words. Um, yeah, it's okay to be a gay Christian, and you can call yourself a gay Christian, but as long as you don't act on it, then it's okay. Uh, you can remain celibate, but you can still call yourself a gay Christian. And uh, I've always found that, that view to be deeply problematic. Um, yes, I'm a, I'm a side B Christian, I'm a gay Christian, but I've decided to be celibate. The problem with that position is that you have bought into the cultural message that you identify by your the sexuality that you feel and that you experience. And uh, I really think that's confusing, and a lot of our kids are buying into that message. So I have had kids even at Geneva who will go through a Geneva education, and they'll get the idea that, yeah, marriage is between a man and a woman. I agree with that. The, the, the feelings that I have toward the same sex, I should not act upon, but I'm a gay Christian, and I identify with the gay community, and I am LGBTQ, right? And uh, so we, we've had students at Geneva who have taken that line of thinking. Uh, can I mention the name Greg Johnson? Essentially a Greg Johnson approach to understanding uh, identity. Uh, I think that's deeply problematic uh, because it it fails in biblical anthropology for young people to identify first and foremost through their union with Christ. We mm -hmm. want our kids to understand who they are in relationship to Jesus and how the Holy Spirit has, has united them to, to Christ. That's your identity, Christian. 
Your identity is found in being in union with Christ, not by some kind of experiential phenomenon of uh, desiring, uh, uh, you know, uh, and being attracted to someone of the same uh, gender. So I, th- I think our biggest challenge right now, our biggest challenge right now in Christian higher education at the undergraduate level in particular is going to be uh, to help kids understand that side B Christianity is not helpful um, and uh, even identifying yourself as a gay Christian is not helpful. Um, it's more helpful, I think as the PCA study uh, paper concluded, that it's much more helpful to refer to yourself maybe as someone who struggles with same-sex attraction and I'm trying to put that to death because ultimately my identity is found in Christ. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's much more helpful. Uh, and it's at that point of confusion where I think we need to disciple disciple our kids. Yeah, and and just to just to piggyback on your conversation there about that, the way the, the way I've identified cuz I've heard from from people within our denomination that that the side B issue is not a theological issue. And it's, and I said it's it absolutely is a theological issue because it's it's speaking of ontology, which is being, which is theology. It's anthropology, right? I mean, so so making ontological designations such as I am, a, a verb of being, LGBT or whatever else, is 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 a false view of anthropology. It's a false view of what it means to be human. It's to take this category of orientation, which is real. It's, I don't know about the category, but like the, the experience or the desires are real. I'm not going to rob anybody of their real experience, but to take something from the, the, the designation of a desire and put it at the level of being. And the idea that our desires should determine what we should be able to do is is absolutely untenable. And everybody would say this, although the culture, like you said, is, I mean, things are a mess because that's why, that's the argument between these maps. Uh, minor attracted persons are saying, well, I can't, this is what I am made to desire. So how can that be wrong? Which is completely opposite what the Bible says about deny yourself, take up your cross yeah. and follow me, you know, that yeah. we are to put to death our evil desires. And so, yes, desires are unwanted often, and desires can drive us, but just because they are unwanted and driving us, well, that's that's the whole struggle with sin. That's Romans seven. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. I've actually written an essay on this. Maybe I'll maybe I'll, I'll prov- maybe I'll provide it to you for for you for your benefit as mm-hmm. well as for your listeners, where we distinguish between ontology and phenomenology. Right? Nice phenomenology doesn't determine ontology. There you right? go. A certain phenomenon of experience doesn't determine who you are at the right. level of being, which I think is, is what you're saying. Um, and, uh, but this is just the point at which our kids need to be discipled these days, right? So, so because you might experience same-sex attraction does not mean that you are a gay Christian, mm-hmm. right? It means that you're experiencing something uh, that is uh, an example of sinfulness in our world, as a result of the fall, you experience this kind of uh, sinful desires in one way. I might experience them in a different way, but our responsibility as ones who are in union with Christ 
is to look more like Christ every day, and that means doing the hard work of putting sin to death and being filled with the newness of life. Amen. And, and so that uh, uh, that's that's the point of conversation I think that needs to be had in a lot of uh, uh, Christian contexts, and the point of confusion that seems to have emerged uh, even even in Christian colleges like Geneva College. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well. That's so good. So definitely share that. Is it is it a a file or you have a link to a web a web page that that holds the essay? I, I can provide either one. If you give me a link, I'll stick it in the show notes, and then and then people have access to it. And I guess the final thought I have on that is why this matters because I always try to tell people why it matters. I I'd written a a, a post uh, called the joy robbing false hope of side B gay Christianity mm-hmm. because. Mm-hmm. If you buy into the ontological designation that this is what I am, it makes no sense to tell a person, then don't do this. And what it does is, first of all, it's it's um, it's like trimming weeds. So you're just trying to modify behavior without getting at the root of, of the problem. And when you trim weeds, they grow back stronger. And so we, we are told, told to put to death these things. But if it's a part of your being, you can't put it to death. So uh, that's why, and, 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 I, and I wrote this and people says you're nuts. And I've seen it in my own experience, very sadly, that people who try, who buy into the side B designation at some point, give up the fight and, and go full on side A, because this is what I am. Yeah. And it's sad because we can have, uh, you know, like the, like the ARC report says, and I believe the, conf- you know, while imperfection still exists, um, but we can we can have victory. We can have sanctification. We can grow in 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 godliness and see fruit and and find joy in that. You know. So, Amen. Praise God. Yep. Uh, Amen. Let me let me see because we're getting. Um, okay, so that kind of answers the question. You are seeing it in your Christian students, and as a uh, well, certainly you. But would you say as a as a faculty or an institution, there is a concerted effort to try to address. Th- these worldviews and ideologies biblically? Uh, yes, and that's one of the benefits, I think, of being uh, owned by the RPCNA. Uh, the RPCNA, I think, has done a really good job of addressing some of these issues way before they were even issues in the PCA. So uh, study reports have been published on these uh, issues five, ten years ago. Uh, actually, and uh, you might have noticed that some of the some of the reports that our denomination, the PCA, has produced have actually referenced the RPCNA uh, study papers on these issues. So there's there's a commitment to remain biblical uh, that that comes down to us from the board of trustees through the administration and our president. Uh, I actually serve as the uh, the chair of the faculty senate and have been a faculty representative here at the college for a number of years to the to the president's cabinet and so i can i can tell you from the inside right that uh that there's concerted effort to uh to to challenge faculty and staff to think biblically on these issues and it's actually a a pretty um robust part of the faculty development program here that that folks are involved with so the language that we're talking about here is very familiar language with uh, with the faculty. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's great to hear. So, a couple of final thoughts as we wrap up our questions. One is you we talked about the the psalm, the psalm singing and uh, 
and, and believe it or not, I've, I've, I've got to go to an RPCNA worship, uh, worship service. I've never been, but friends of mine who have been influenced by it say, yeah, it's a completely different thing than a church that isn't used to singing psalms. And they, they, they just pick up maybe a, a, a Psalter and, and, and try to sing it. Like there's, there's a, um, I, I, it, hopefully this isn't profane, but almost an art to it. There's a right way. There's, there's a way to do it. And, and everybody who's, who I've known who has gone has said, it's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, my question is for the students. So I know there's a uh, required chapel. I think the whole campus shuts down and everybody's supposed to go. I know you can have some, some waivers not to go. So it's not uh, legalistic in that sense where I, I assume probably it, it's Psalms only for that. Well, we have a, a Wednesday morning chapel that's required, and you're right, all the offices on campus shut down. It's, it's the time for our whole campus community to be together, and it's, uh, it's a very simple service, right? So we gather together, there's announcements, uh, here's what's happening on campus, make sure you, you know, participate, you know, here's some options for, uh, coming up for various activities. Then we usually sing a psalm. And then we have uh, the scripture reading and a sermon, and then we close with a psalm. So it's uh, it's very simple, very straightforward. Um, it's uh, it's winsome, uh, I think. And uh, yeah, if you've never sung the psalms before, uh, it's it might be a little strange. It might feel like you just walked into outer space or something. But, uh, you know, I, I'm PCA, so our, our, our church does both hymns and psalms. But the way that I look at it is um, I have great, a great appreciation for the RPs because they challenge us, non-RPs, to reflect more deeply on the question of why do we do what we do in worship, right? We, we as, as Reformed folks, um, hold to the regular principle of worship, Right, and so why don't we have you know uh, people wear pink leotards and dance around you know liturgical dance in our worship? Well, there's a reason for that, right? Uh, and so our RP friends, I think, challenge other Nay Park churches to just wrestle with the question of, okay, why do we do what we do uh, in worship? Mm. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's what our chapel looks like. We we do have a Thursday evening. Uh, more contemporary um, worship experience that our students run. Uh, it doesn't count for chapel credit, <laughs> but it's a place where some uh, of our non-denominational students or non-reform students can kind of have a place where, where they uh, can do their thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, chapel's required on Wednesday mornings. Uh, and, you know, some students grouse about it, you know, f from time to time. They'd rather have drums and guitars and, and stuff. But um, I, I think singing God's word is a, is a wonderful thing. And if you've, never sung it, if you've never seen it done well, then uh, as a PCA'er, I would encourage you to, to visit a, an RPCNA church uh, sometime uh, to experience it, uh, it done well. Yeah, thanks. So I... I, I can't believe when I was on your campus, which is absolutely gorgeous. I'm sure it gets cold in the winter. My, my kid couldn't believe there was no air conditioning in, in the dorms, either at Grove City or, or at Geneva. And I said, well, feel the temperature right now. It was July and it was fine. You know, it's like, why do you need AC? 
Um, so it's absolutely gorgeous. The buildings are, are um, majestic, but you don't have a sanctuary. Like, how, how come they haven't been? So you guys are, you, you're, you're converting the gyms over, right? Is that how you do it? Yeah, we have, uh, we have chapel in our gymnasium, uh, which is more than sufficient to house everyone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what you raise is a really interesting question. And, you know, why don't we have a chapel building on campus? And, uh, you know, I only have a wives tale answer to that because I don't have a definitive answer to that. And there, there are two answers that I sometimes hear, you know, when I ask the old timers, you know, why don't we have a chapel building? One answer is, well, all of life is worship. Right, but there is corporate. So <laughs> I know. So that's right. one answer. Yes, and, and and often that answer is with a twinkle in the eye, <laughs> and uh, and then with the other eye, the other the other answer is, well, if someone were to donate us enough money, we could uh, we could build one, and so maybe that maybe someday someone will build the Scott Scheidemantle Memorial Chapel. <laughs> <laughs> and and of course they throw the word memorial in there, right? <laughs> uh, so those are the two answers that I that I so, sometimes. So so what do you, what do you need? Does five million build you what you need, or is it ten? Oh, who knows? <laughs> well, I, the only reason I raise it is because it doesn't seem like y'all are hurting for money. I mean, the campus was absolutely pristine, and the buildings were beautiful, and they were. Uh, the architecture was just phenomenal. So it, it, it's not like it's like, well, they don't have money for a chapel. So anyway, maybe maybe somebody will hear this and, and want to build you a 2,000-seat a, a chapel. That would be fantastic. Just don't call it the Scheidemantle Memorial Chapel. I know. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Well, I think uh, I think we covered what I wanted to. I've enjoyed this, and I definitely will look you up next time I'm in the area. And uh, any any thoughts you had anything you wanted to say on the pca or general assembly were you at ga this year i was not able to go to general assembly this year i've gone the last seven or eight years or so in a row uh but i've not been there i was not there this past year but i got the full report from our pastors when they came back uh i think i'm i'm happy to see some of the clarification that's happening to the bco particularly around the topic of uh, sanctification and expectations for uh, for elders, uh, and uh, I think that that's heading in the right direction. I still would like to see a little bit more clarification with some of that language uh, along the lines of what you and I were talking about, particularly addressing the side B uh, issue. I, th I think that's deeply problematic, but I, th I think we're I think we're heading in the right direction. I, I now now remember I'm coming from the PCUSA. So uh, the kind of robust discussion and debate that we have in the PCA is wonderful. Aha, it's great to compa hear. Compared to the uh, the kinds of issues that were being debated in the PCUSA back back 20, 25 years ago when I was when I was there, we're arguing, I think, from the same um, uh, perspective, right? We're arguing from the scriptures. We're arguing from. Uh, the historic reform faith as PCAers, and I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, that that's great. It was uh, there was a lot of good things that happened as this general assembly. Um, I actually wrote a a, tw a twenty point summary of of some of the highlights, but you know, I called it like the 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 GA of of accountability and transparency, or 
you know, if you, if you like a more formal term that re review and control GA, there was a number of things that committee of commissioners or uh, different groups did the proper checks and balances to raise some issues and, and address some things in, in the ways we want them addressed. And I think that's, that's been a lot of the concern is not only do we not agree with things that we see going on in pockets of the denomination or certain places, but that nothing is being done about them. And so, uh, we know Presbyterian moves slow as long as there's being there's progress being made toward things that's encouraging. I think that's what we see. So yeah, good. Well, if you're ever down, uh, I'm a uh, 20 minutes south of Winston Salem at a church, a uh, pastor church here called Meadowview, and I'm wearing a Park Road shirt because that was a former church I was at. But uh, if you're ever down my way, I hope we'll you'll look me up. We supposedly have the. Uh, we're the barbecue capital of the world, supposedly, in Lexington, North <laughs> Carolina. And so we can maybe get some barbecue. But uh, <laughs> thanks. And I'll definitely be looking you up. And I know we have a lot of friends in common. So it's good to actually speak with you, Scott. Thank you. Yes. And when you and your son come back up to Geneva, uh, please let me know. And I'll be sure to treat you to Orem's Donuts. Oh, nice. Okay. Which is the best donut in all of the U.S. of A. Well, Made here in Beaver Falls. Well, there you go. Who knew that? So I might, I'm going to tell him. I'm going to make my son watch and listen to this. He doesn't listen to my podcast, but maybe this one he will. <laughs> I actually met a PCA pastor who works in your department. Uh, Byron Curtis. He teaches yes. Hebrew, Hebrew, maybe? Yes, Byron Curtis. Yes. Yeah. Well, yep. tell him I said hello. And I will. Okay, perfect. So anyway, to wrap this up again, or attempt to, thank you for listening. Uh, this is Scott Scheidemantle. Definitely look up Geneva College. And consider your Christian college options out there. And it's great to know we have one in the reformed world. Thanks again, Scott. Thank you. If you want to know the worth of a seminary, go take a look at their graduates. Our graduates are all over the world. They're planting churches. They're revitalizing churches. They're translating the Bible. They're starting discipleship movements. It's heart-shaking, life-changing, and just mind-expanding of what God is doing. You know, sometimes I really do have to pinch myself that what I get to do with the ministries at BTS, the engaging with the students and the impact that God uses us to have on the lives of our students, it's a pleasure, it's an honor, and it's a joy. Jesus is still building his church. So we need to equip the pastor teachers who equip the saints. We need to equip the elders who shepherd the church. And I am grateful that Birmingham Theological Seminary is available to be a part of the expansion of the kingdom of God in these very crucial days 